Welcome to episode 119 of Reframe Your Life. Today's episode, we're featuring a new book by Toronto author Julia Zarankin. Her book, entitled Field Notes from an Unintentional Birder, drops September 12th in Canada and October 16th in the U.S., Julia Zarankin's writing has appeared in The Walrus, Orion Magazine, Three Penny Review, Antioch Review, Birding Magazine, Maisonneuve, The New Quarterly, Ontario Nature, and The Globe and Mail. Zarankin's essays are also featured in several anthologies. She won the Eden Mills Writers Festival Nonfiction Prize, congratulations, and has been first runner-up for Prism International's Nonfiction Prize. A finalist for the TNQ Edna Stabler Personal Essay Contest, twice long-listed for the CBC Nonfiction Prize, and one of her short stories was shortlisted this year for the CBC Short Story Prize. It had a bird theme. You won't be surprised to hear. Julia Zarankin is a Toronto resident who leads adventure souls on tours around the world, although not right now, and teaches courses to lifelong learners about Russian and European culture and literature. Sandy, can you take us into a description of the premise for Julia's memoir, please? Yes, I would be happy to, Patty. When Julia Zarankin saw her first red-winged blackbird at the age of 35, she didn't expect that it would change her life. Recently divorced and auditioning hobbies during a stressful career transition, she stumbled on bird watching, initially out of curiosity for the strange breed of humans who wear multi-pocketed vests, carry spotting scopes, and discuss the finer points of optics with disturbing fervor. What she never could have predicted was that she would become one of them. Not only would she come to identify proudly as a birder, but birding would ultimately lead her to find love uncover a new language, and lay down her roots. Field Notes from an Unintentional Birder tells the story of finding meaning in midlife through birds. The book follows the peregrinations of a narrator who learns more from birds than she ever anticipated as she began to realize that she herself is a migratory species born in the former Soviet Union, growing up in Vancouver and Toronto, studying and working in the U.S. and living in Paris, coming from a Russian immigrant family of concert pianists who believed that the outdoors were for, in quotation marks, other people, Julia Zarankin found, recounts the challenges and joys of unexpectedly discovering one's wild side and finding one's tribe in the, unlikely, in the unlikeliest of places. So welcome, Julia. You are being interviewed today by two women who admire and are a little jealous of your birding resume. Mm -hmm. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> well, we've been talking birding, Patty and I, since we started reading your book and sharing our own birding stories. And we, I'm just going to launch right into what we call the COVID question, because we start every interview with this question about how people are doing. And a little twist for you, because I know you've actually written a little bit about this, um, about birding during the COVID-19 pandemic. So in what ways has birding been beneficial for you? And what have you kind of observed in your community around birding during this pandemic? So I feel like in a way birding has saved me during this pandemic. I've been I've been going out, well, especially during during spring migration. So in May, I was going out 
pretty much every day. Um, the one positive about COVID is that there was almost no traffic in Toronto, so I could get down to the lake very, very quickly. Um, and I feel like birding for me is an extraordinary escape. So that's really that's really what it was. I would I would go birding and watch the migrants who, of course, you know, don't care about COVID. They don't know COVID exists. And it was this wonderful, just breath, literally a breath of fresh air from the rest of my life, which was feeling pretty dismal at that point. And I've been talking to a lot of people about how, you know, suddenly they were, you know, walking out into their backyard, observing their feeder, looking up so much more. And I mean, people have been noticing that there's been a lot less pollution. And so, you know, friends, friends of mine would say, are the birds singing louder this year? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, oh, there's less cars so we can hear them. So it was, it was really heartening to see uh, people start to look up and to pay closer attention to nature. Um, mm. So I think that that was one of the positives of, of COVID, of the whole birding during COVID experience for me. Mm. Mm -hmm. What would your normal birding schedule be if it wasn't? You said you went out almost every day. Would it have been a weekend thing for you? What if that would that have looked like during other times? Yeah, primarily a weekend thing. Although in May, I tend to go a little, a little bird crazy. So I do try to I try to go out four or five times a week anyhow, like, you know, just for an hour, an hour and a half um, before, before my work day starts. So, you know, I'd go out at 6.30. But here I was, I was going out for a solid four or five hours. <laughs> one, way, one way to get through a pandemic? It, was, it felt very luxurious, actually. So Definitely did. You say birding. So I know Sandy's going to lead us in to talk about the language around this, but there is a whole language around birds. And um, I think we'll spend a lot of time talking about that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, right off the top, what is the difference between birding and bird watching? Um, so people... You know, people, people take this distinction, some people take this distinction very seriously. Bird watching is the more contemplative form. So, you know, when you're just casually interested in birds, you might take your binoculars sometimes and have a look at uh, what's up in a tree. But it's, it's sort of a practice that you develop just observing nature around you. Birding is the more obsessive variety of that. <laughs> so um, birders like to chase birds. One uh, really um, extraordinary birder in the U.S., Christian Cooper, has called birding like hunting without the blood. <laughs> <And> that's <laughs> kind of what it feels like. So birders obsessively check eBird, the um, citizen science website that kind of tells you what birds are in what areas. And if there's something rare, you will get an alert on your little device, on the device of your choice, and you will hop in your car and chase that bird and find it. Um, yeah, I've chased birds four or five hours away. Wow. Really? There's a yeah. confession, folks. You heard it Yes. And, and were you successful? Like, it feels like to me, like, what if I drove all the way for four or five hours and then didn't find the bird? Like, that's a pretty heavy investment. I've been successful and I've also been unsuccessful. And um, yeah, like some birds are a quote unquote, just flew bird. You know, you get there and yes. they're like, ah, oh, should have been here 10 minutes ago. Of course. Um, so you win some, you lose some. Birding is a very emotional business, as I've learned. Really? 
Tell us more about that. I also yes. understand there's quite an etiquette involved, isn't there? I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but, you know, what if the bird just flew? I assume you don't go out to this quiet, contemplative place where some people might be in repose and go, I just missed it. I mean, there must be an appropriate manner to conduct your hunt without blood. Actually, what you just said, the expletive, 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 that does seem to be the appropriate reason. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. I share that. <laughs> and then I remember seeing a great great owl for the first time that required like a two and a half hour drive from Toronto anyway there were there was a crowd of people there and this woman had been chasing this bird for years and hadn't been able to see it and she just wept she broke down and started weeping with joy and I was I was stunned. I, I hadn't really? expected that response. And I, I must admit, when I saw my first pileated woodpecker, I was on the verge of tears myself. <laughs> so wow. I was, I Yeah, and, and you, you're in good company here. But you know what I wondered around this was in, this, in the, the age of urban life and smartphones and everything else. I mean, you talk in the book about having your scope, but there's also the day of having the long lens photography equipment. So it's, if, do people record it or is it just the having seen or do you, do you, do you, is everyone out there snapping pictures with their phone, trying to both see it through their binoculars as well as get a picture? Is that done as well? Yes. It sort of depends on the, person like digiscoping is a thing so you put your iphone up to the scope and take a take a picture oh digiscoping yeah 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 yeah. it's it's a new thing um very often people okay there's people who are photographers and so they're very very serious about the the pictures they take and a lot of people a lot of um sort of friends i know kind of take photos for educational purposes. Like if they see a shorebird and they're not sure of the ID, they'll snap yes. like 20 photos okay. and then, you know, go home and figure it out right. or plug the photos into Merlin and get the algorithm to figure it out for them. Wow. <laughs> you, this is incredible. I'm taking notes feverishly. Thank God we're recording. Tools. Oh, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology is constantly perfecting their digital tools. Like there's this program called Merlin where you send them a photo and they will, it, it IDs it for you with, um, you know, serious accuracy. Um, and there's also a very similar program that they've put out for bird songs. So you could record a song and be like, what is this? Oh, that's uh, incredible. That's wow. I, uh, I, I can't get enough of this. I, um, and my apologies to all of you out there that aren't avid birders. You might want to switch podcasts now. So <laughs> I will quickly segue back to the book. <laughs> well, so, I want to just keep going a bit with the language, Patty, because oh, I, I had okay. written there, there was some things that you talked about in the book that I wasn't sure if these were your words or if these are part of the birding community and the spark bird. So the spark bird is the bird that's your, like your gateway bird. Is that, oh, that's, <laughs> that's great. And yours was the red winged blackbird. It was the red winged blackbird. Yeah. And so um, close. So very close to my heart, the red winged blackbird. What's your spark bird, Sandy? So mine would be the blue jay. Always. We have tons of blue jays around, but they've always been this bird that kind of, um, draws me for some reason like I'm fascinated with them and I think just getting to know blue jays sort of hooked me into wanting to know other birds as well but I do love blue jays yeah and I'm a cardinal 
I'm the, I think the Northern Cardinal, but I'm, I'm a Cardinal for a million reasons. And I promised Sandy, I would only say it once, but the, I took my um, love of birds that was taught to me by my father and I grew up in the, in the country. So there were always a lot of birds around, but I took my knowledge of birds to the point where I've just written a series of children's books where a platoon of backyard common species of birds actually conspire to um, pick on the park's maintenance crew in the park that is actually belongs to them. And there is a cardinal and there is a blue jay and, but it's all headed up by, you'll love this, Julia, Sergeant Red Wing Blackbird. He's got a full, he has his full epaulets in my stories. I so I love, love that, that he was your spark bird because, you know, as common as it is, and you give sort of the apology in your book to, you know, birds that are common. I happen to think the red winged blackbird is spectacular when you really look at how many colors there is on those shoulder epaulets. Yeah, it really is spectacular until you get dive bombed by them. <laughs> <laughs> right. And to me, they're the first bird of spring. Usually, like, yes. that's the first bird I see. Then I, I know, like, we're starting. We're, you know, we're, yes. things yeah. are starting to happen. It used to be robins, but they seem to seem, stay all year now. And uh, now for me, it's the red-winged blackbird. As soon as I hear that distinct yep. song, I'm like, spring is coming. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. And on the opposite bird. side of that, what is the nemesis bird? What did you mean when you said the nemesis bird? So it's the bird you're desperate to see. And every time you go out, the bird has other plans. <laughs> it's the bird you really try for and you just can't seem to get. And so it's like, it is your nemesis. Mm -hmm. And it's funny Mine. because I had been wanting to see a pileated woodpecker yes. for probably for four years. Like once I caught a fleeting glimpse of a pileated flying, but I wanted, you know, the full frontal. I wanted the full on experience. And when I finally did see it, I mean, there was this moment of euphoria, of course, I nearly kissed the ground. But after that, I was like, Oh, oh, but you know, you don't even get that thing that you had been wanting so bad. Yes. It's like the saddest moment in the world where for a second you don't have a nemesis. Mm -hmm. Right. Because the anticipation is part of the fun. I'm like that with owls. Like I have, I've only seen owls like a barred owl and a snowy owl. Yeah. I, that one I drove to St. Catharines to see and I felt like it was cheating. And I wanted to ask you about that because for me, there's this thing about if I know it's there and I see it, I didn't, it doesn't really count. I don't, that's kind of a weird thing, but like I had heard that this owl hangs out in this place in St. Catherine. So I drove down and I saw it and it was beautiful, but then it was like, yeah, but I didn't really find that owl. Like there's something cheating about that to me. Mm. The other owls I've only seen a couple times at the cottage and I looked for them. Like I went on a hunt for those, but they're like, I, you talk in your book about Leon, your, your husband, yeah, like just going, oh, is that an owl? And just pointing to one and just made me crazy. I was like, <laughs> yeah. I look for owls every day, every day. Do you? Never see them. Yeah. I'm yeah. still embarrassed about that moment because I really had a meltdown. <laughs> I was like, you're not even a birder. I know. I felt the same way when I read that. I was like, I hate him. <laughs> Yeah, I know. And, it, yeah. you know, this and this does step into this sort of 
uh, authenticity theme, if you will, about the book where at the end you do decide, I hope I'm not giving away the drama for everyone, but you do decide that in some ways, for multiple reasons, you want to step out on your own and you want to find them on your own. I mean, it is one thing to be led by an expert and you gathered everything you could from that. But this, there's this difference between, and this is where we step into the seeing and looking as well as the discovering and finding that have these differences. And I found that metaphor for your life and for all of our lives in middle adulthood or midlife to be really powerful, that it was the, I just need to know I can do this on my own and have the experience on my own. And there is something to that, isn't there, for each of us at this stage in our life? Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad that resonated with you because that was, that was in a way exactly what I was after. And this moment where I decided to sort of, you know, try going solo, as I call it, even though I knew that I wouldn't see as many birds, but that act of finding them myself and sort of doing the work myself and developing the confidence in myself that I could do this, that I think it was really... I mean, for me, it was um, it, it was a sort of moment of bravery because my husband had been telling me for you know about a year. He's like, "Why don't you go out birding on your own?" And I'm like, "What? What do you mean? I, I just can't do that." Yeah. <laughs> and um, it it felt so good. And I still do bird with others. Like I have some birding friends, and often I will you know go on birding walks. Of course, not during COVID; they've all been canceled. Uh, and those are, those are rewarding in their own way too. But I I love finding the stuff myself. I bet. It's like like you hit your birding adolescence or something to me, you know, like you've come through and you're learning, you're, you're on, you know, becoming an adult in the birding community, you're standing on your own. And I think that's a beautiful Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, I mean, I harbor no illusions. I am a lifelong beginner birder. Like I will never be one of those super birders, right? I mean, like, like anything, I think you really need to start when you're young or devote just hours to studying the plumage and and all of that. I mean, it it really is complicated. And so I'm, I'm very much, I I will always be, uh, you know, a beginner and I'm okay with that. (laughs) And are you able to name the accomplishment? for yourself you know this is and i'm i'm seeing this again as a metaphor and and what triggered this for me was nay for the listers as you call them the list is the thing and that's is when i begin to wonder okay the listers have it on their list but they can't prove it so i wondered is the the provability the accountability the or is it the self-knowing the accomplishment that i saw that great horned owl i saw that pileated woodpecker is that what it is is it the experience? And you know, I'm stepping straight into the whole notion of the being conscious when you're birding as opposed to actively hunting for birds. Yeah. Um, it is the experience, so, but I do love a little bit of a hunt too. Okay. <laughs> so I feel like it's, it's a little bit of all of that. Like I keep a list, but you know, I'm not obsessive about my list. Like there's birds that I could have put on my list, which I didn't because I don't remember what they look like. (laughs) Okay. You know, like when I was in Israel and I went out with a bird guide and he sent me a list after our tour. And I was like, okay, that one, I don't remember. I looked in the book, had no recollection of it. So I didn't put it on my list, but I still, you know, I like having a list. I I like amassing the list, but for me, the, the most exciting part of it is really seeing the bird and getting to know it. 
Is that right? Yeah. I wondered a little bit about the behavioral study here, because I think that's my, what I wish I knew more about was Mm -hmm. because I've imagined them. And as a person who has spoken out about anthropomorphizing, I'm a complete hypocrite because I entirely anthropomorphize birds um, and a little bit canines too. So I'm I'm admitting it here and I've written books about both. So shame, but you know, the, the behavioral piece is how we start to connect with the wildness of birds, right? I mean, to see them as part of nature isn't enough for birders. Birders see them as nature personified in many ways. They are the emblematic of nature. So I wondered for you, which experience was, ah, oh, this is why I do it. Can you, is there one, are there many? Have you had that moment of the accomplishment, the presence, the consciousness, the experience, all of that combined? Okay. Puffins, was it your puffin moment? Um, I definitely had a lot of feelings during that puffin moment. I think the moment that really, that really showed me that, oh my, oh my God, I'm kind of turning into an obsessive burger was that moment. Actually, this happened very close to Hamilton. It was in Stony Creek. We were looking for fall warblers and fall warblers are notoriously difficult to identify because uh, they're very drab compared to the spring because, you know, the males aren't trying to seduce a female so they don't have to be all colorful and gorgeous and singing and actually their reproductive organs shrink and along with that shrinkage in fall they lose a lot of the luster of their plumage anyway that was just a cool little side note uh, but I was in Stony Creek looking up and I usually try not to walk while I'm looking up with my binoculars because <laughs> it's dangerous and I saw a black Bernian warbler which was really drab and I correctly ID'd it and I screamed black Bernian and I was so thrilled. I didn't put my binoculars down. I just kept walking and I fell into a construction well. Oh no. Oh, and I mean, no. I couldn't hurt myself, thank goodness. You know, no, nothing happened. It was some miracle. I didn't, I just bruised my back a little bit. I didn't kill myself. But that was the moment where I realized, oh my God, I am completely hooked. And this has turned into something else. <laughs> so I don't know if that sort of answers your question, but that was the moment, sort of like the full body experience where I realized, all right, birding, birding is just, it's part of who I am. It's a part of my life now. It's part of your self-expression now. I did flip yesterday to look for your black birding and and, uh, I had clearly never seen one, but you know, I, I always, is this just pathetic, but I always feel for the birds who don't have to have the gorgeous plumage. I think what I should be doing is the opposite saying, you go, you, you don't need that plumage. You don't need to be, you know, done up to seduce a female. You can just be you. So maybe we should be championing the more, the less lustrous birds, the less colorful birds. Yes, you are in yes. very good company. A lot of um, you know really famous bird watchers believe that, and there is a renaissance of um, you know the female species and people yes. interest in the drabber female birds and sort right. of starting starting to see that. I, too. I loved what you called them. Was it the little brown job or the little brown Joe or LBJ? Little LBJ. Brown yeah. And that I is not like, my invention. That I loved is it. Dirty vernacular. <laughs> yeah. It's like, remind me of the little black dress, you know, like that, yeah. <laughs> that was so funny. Like, and that's how I feel about brown birds. Like now I live near the Red Hill Valley, like near King's um, Forest. So now I'm heading out after this with my binoculars looking for this warbler and see if I can find it. 
Thank you. That's great. I do like in your book, you said that birds have taught you when to listen, when to pay mm. close attention to detail and when to just relinquish control and let the big picture carry you where you need to go. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Like some of these lessons that you've learned along the way through bird watching, birding? Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, you know, birds have really taught me how to see in a different way. And I've had all sorts of, um, all sorts of experiences. Like my husband and I went to Arizona and we ran into this couple. And of course I said, what are you looking at? And they had seen a rare warbler that was on my list. And I tried to find it and tried and tried and tried and I couldn't find it. And I, you know, I just wanted to quit in that moment. I was like, okay, that's enough. I need to throw away these expensive binoculars. This is this is not a hobby, a hobby for me. And then on the way back to my car, when I was pouting and you know feeling sorry for myself, suddenly I saw an acorn woodpecker. It appeared out of nowhere, and this was another bird that had been on my list that I'd been dreaming about even before our trip. And suddenly, like boom, like a light switch, my mood flipped, and I was like, oh my god! If it hadn't been for that non-sighting of the red-faced warbler. I would not be standing in front of an acorn woodpecker right now, totally mm. mesmerized by it. So it's those moments um, where birding has really uh, sort of taught me to embrace spontaneity in a way, because with birds, you know, you have a checklist and you have target birds and you can be in the right place at the right time, but maybe the bird has other plans. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you're not going to see it, but maybe instead of that, if you keep looking, you'll find something else and it might be just, right. as good, it might even be better. So right. that, that was like a real, a real life lesson for me. Mm. I have to be careful to not want to share all my burning stories, but I'm going to tell you one more. Cause I know people listening to this are dying to hear this story, <laughs> but in, um, I, a place I walk near Oakville and Burlington, they, you know how you walk through these, um, like the, Royal Botanical Gardens RBG and they have like the signs like these are the birds that are in the area well there's one that says the indigo bunting and I have lived in this area for 20 years and oh yeah never never seen an no. indigo bunting like uh. almost to the fact that I want to just like scratch it off like no these don't yeah. exist here this mm -hmm. summer I saw three of them and I was in near my house I was out walking and one flew across and I was like and then I, I kept going back to the area. And um, so now I do believe they exist. So there you go. <laughs> so that's my my final birding story for the podcast. I that promise you. a spectacular bird. I'm glad you finally <laughs> saw it. It is. It is. It's the most beautiful bird, I think. I've just, the colors were breathtaking. Yeah. So, but, you know, when you, when you see the female, it is an LBJ. It's like a little brown job. It looks really? like, well, I mean, the shape is exactly the same as the male. Yeah. Oh, don't bird. tell me that. But it's, it's just it's <clears throat> brown. It looks like a sparrow. It's the bird that I can never ID correctly. <laughs> it's so <laughs> unbelievable that that's the female indigo bunting. Wow. wow. You know, I feel like I should become a vigilante advocate for LBJs. Like I'm going to start wearing brown clothing. <laughs> it's uh, it really does raise the, but it's true in every species except humans. It's true across the animal kingdom. Uh, so I just say, you know, if, if the bird kingdom gets LBJs, at least wolves get alpha females. That's all I can say, but my bias is showing. Yes. The um, I wondered what happened after the end of the book. I wondered if if you went off on your own and has that been right for you? Has that been 
Um, has that extended your enjoyment? Has that been your next phase has been right for you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm so happy this book is now published and out into the world because otherwise I probably could have kept writing it my entire life because, <laughs> you know, the, the project continues, the journey continues. Um, sure. And yeah, I'm, I'm still learning. I'm still misidentifying all the time and screwing up and getting back there. And birding really teaches you how to become comfortable with failure, which is <laughs> for my writing life too, actually. But um, yeah, I'm still, I'm still birding a lot. And, it, and I'm still trying to convince my husband that um, he needs to well, A, that I need to get a scope and B, that he needs right. to be my scope slave. Um, I was going to say, let's ask the really deep questions here. Okay. Did you get a scope? Do you so, have them? Uh, and what about the multi-pocket vest? I've got to know. Have you got one? Not yet. It's not out of the question. The scope, you know, okay, part of the, um, you know, disappointment around COVID is supposed to, is that I was supposed to launch my book at Peely in May. Uh, oh. That didn't happen. I was supposed to buy my scope then in May. So all of this is being pushed back to 2021. I but, um, yeah, I do plan on getting a scope. The multi-pocketed vest, uh, who knows? Although my friend Martha has one. And um. sometimes... Sometimes I kind of eye it with a certain... Does Martha have the backache? Now, did she have to work out to carry her scope? I think Martha is just generally more robust than I am. (laughs) (laughs) The DNA of a pianist. You don't need to be robust. Yeah, the workout project isn't working out so well. Gotta gotta admit. (laughs) I I think a lot more middle adulthood women love you now. (laughs) Much to my husband's chagrin. (laughs) You can lift, if you can lift a fountain pen, you're okay. That's what I say. (laughs) I feel like this podcast um, episode should come with a warning for people because once they read your book, I think that they're going to want to start amassing all of this equipment and getting out there with their books and their guides and start... So, oh, I think so. I think it will be hard. <laughs> so where would you suggest that somebody begins if you know, because I, I do think that people will read your book and they'll be they'll be intrigued by this idea of birding and, but at the same time overwhelmed by the, you know, $1,000 binoculars and $2,000 sure. scopes and whatever. I'm just making those numbers up. But <laughs> I think that's probably accurate. Oh yeah, right. you're you're lowballing it. No, just oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean you don't. You can you can start with. You don't need to buy high end binoculars to enjoy birds. There are plenty. You know, you can start with a fifty dollar pair of binoculars from Canadian Tire and see that blue jay in all of its uh, beauty and detail. I would say only go for an expensive pair of binoculars if this is something that that you really feel strongly about. Um, right you know, uh, of course, like whatever they let in more light, it's a different experience. But um, you can start with a very primitive pair of binoculars. And you know, if the hobby speaks to you, then sort of go go on from there. I would say for people starting out, if you have a backyard, set up a feeder and watch. Oh, yeah. 
and see who comes to it. And there will be drama. It will be like, you will be reliving your high school cafeteria yes. experiences all over again, right? I see all out war on my feeders oh, to totally. the point. I've had to, I've had to hang different kinds and I've got you know stands all over my little backyard. So I just went and I got stuff for the big birds because I, I went and I got suet and I went and I got, I added, I always mix my own bird seed. Yeah, I know. But you know, you load up on the blackened sunflower seeds for the big birds, because if they're over there, they won't pick on the little ones and steal the good stuff because the little ones always play small. They know the animal kingdom. It's ruthless, you guys. It's ruthless. The little birds, my sparrows get quite knocked about. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, and and then there's always the drama, like if a Cooper's hawk flies by, oh, because yeah. right. always, they're always surveying the buffet, right? Of course. I mean, they're, they're looking. They're what can I grab? So if you have a backyard, set up a feeder. That would be the first thing. If you don't have a backyard, it's still possible to enjoy birds. Don't worry. Um, just, you know, go outside and honestly look up. Try to familiarize yourself with the common birds. So, um, you know, just the common backyard birds. Don't focus on all those LBJs. Like there's tons of little brown jobs that even seasoned birders have a really, really hard time with. So yeah, ignore good. those for now. Focus on the bright colors. Focus on the ones okay. you can ID. And somebody gave me this advice, actually, get to know them really well. And then once you've trained your eye to see that detail, and if you have a good ear, get to know their yes. song. Because even like a bird like the robin has like 20 variations of their song. Right. They trip me up all the time. So get yes. to know their song. And then from there, your eyes and ears will be trained a little bit. And then just slowly add to your repertoire. I found it comforting to read about your um, challenges with bird songs because uh, yes. I think they're very difficult to, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, like a, a cardinal I find is a, a yes. good one to get to know. Like it's yes. very distinct, but there's so many other ones. And I thought, well, with someone with your, your heritage and your, your background with music. And I thought, wow, if you're having a hard time, like I'm okay. I'm <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah. birds, birds don't just do songs. There's also chip notes and alarm calls. And there is so much there. But um, yeah, <laughs> often birders um, try to learn. There's all these mnemonic devices that are meant to help you. And for me, this yeah. was just like an endless source of trauma because it brought oh. me right back to my Royal Conservatory of Music. Me too. Exams. And it was right. Such a horror show. Me, me too. Right. Royal Conservatory yeah. and having to, and I mean, I think you went ARCT. I capped out at grade 10. <laughs> Can I interrupt you and ask you to tell the deer kill story? Because speaking of mnemonics, this is one of my favorites. And then I know you can come up with some others, but the deer kill story, I should look up what chapter it is for our listeners. I'll do that while you're speaking. So um, I think it was, this was the first year I was birding and it was, well, it was definitely my first spring migration. And I went out with my bird group and we had seen a million, a million birds. And then when we sat down to lunch, they asked me, so what was your favorite bird of the day? And I said, oh, definitely the deer kill. 
<laughs> because I, I've gotten that, you know, confused with, of course, the kill deer. And they, they were very kind about it and very, very gracious. And my bird leader said, actually, it's, uh, it's, it's the kill deer. And the reason that was my favorite bird of the day is because the kill deer stands still. And it was actually the only one that I could see that day because yes. it was spring migra- migration. They're all like fluttering about. And so, yeah. And of course, the sound that the kill deer makes is kill deer, kill deer, right? That's yeah, what yeah. it is. But there are so many like that. Have you got some yes. favorites? Please entertain us. What are some of your favorites of the words we think that birds are saying in order to recognize their call? Um, well, there's the Eastern Toei, which says drink your tea, which is supposed to be so easy, except when you're out in the field, there's at least five different birds that to my ear say drink your tea. <laughs> <laughs> So my bird guide kept saying, you know, how can you confuse that? It's so obvious. You know, the Eastern Toei says that. I'm like, but wait, that, someone else is saying that. And he was like, no, no, no. That's, uh, that's the yellow warbler. Sweet, sweet. You're so sweet. Ye, right. <laughs> so uh, I, it's like the robin. Right? Look at me. Look at me. I'm like, no. That's not what it's saying. That's not what he's saying. He's got something else to say. I know. And I was actually so relieved when I talked to my friend Nate Swick, who is a seasoned birder. He works with the American Birding Association. And he said, and I, I will quote Nate, we should abolish mnemonics. they don't work for me but there are some great apps that can help people with that right there and i is it one by the audubon society there's a i i don't know which ones you recommend but there are apps where you can press a button and go down all the calls of the chickadee and you can for backyard birders i really think that that's a great and important thing to learn yeah audubon has a really good one for that it's very user-friendly oh awesome could we ask you to read a little bit? Uh, is this a good time for you? Take your time finding it. But if you're willing and let us know where it is, and I hope we didn't um, wreck the suspense by mentioning one of these spots in the book for you already, like the kill deer moment, which I love. Not at all. Okay, so this is from, uh, from the beginning of the book, right when I was... Um, when I was sort of auditioning hobbies, trying to decide on something. And so, yeah, this is from the beginning of the book. I discovered birds when many things in my life seemed disappointing. I had emerged from both a career that I'd worked extremely hard for, only to realize that it didn't make me happy, and a marriage that had fallen apart. I had just entered into a new relationship that I wasn't quite sure I had the force to sustain, and I second-guessed myself at every turn. And the reality that I would probably never have kids had finally set in. At Loose Ends, I started auditioning hobbies, from bookmaking to letterpress to cycling, hiking and pottery, waiting for something to stick. I thought back to an old housemate I had in graduate school who used to set up a spotting scope and watch ducks on Lake Carnegie from our balcony, jotting down observations, counting species, and not once did I think to look through his scope but I spent hours sitting on the sofa reading and watching him watch birds on weekend mornings. And then I thought back to another moment at a youth hostel in Point Reyes, California, when my sister and I accidentally ended up in one of the birding meccas of the Western United States. I had been drawn to Point Reyes for the rugged seashore, the dunes and the remote lighthouse. My sister came along for the ride. 
We ended up exploring none of those things because of high winds that blocked the road to the lighthouse and the mild boredom that ensued. As it grew dark, we inadvertently tumbled into a conversation with a couple from the United Kingdom, clad in multi-pocketed khaki vests, pants tucked into socks, who had traveled the world in search of birds. They'd been to India, South America, and parts of the South Pacific. They'd been all over Africa, and now they had come to Point Reyes in search of new world species. I wanted to hear about the Taj Mahal, about safari adventures, but they ignored my questions and told me about exquisite birds and rare plumages and remarkable additions to their life lists. My sister yawned uncontrollably, my eyes glazed over, and they kept talking at a frenetic clip, one interrupting the other to correct a misstep in genus, a wrong subspecies, while I tried unsuccessfully to bring the conversation back to zebras, or at the very least, Indian food, two things that I could at least visualize. As we attempted to abort the conversation, the hardy woman stepped out onto the porch and waved us over. If you're very, very quiet, you might see a bird. A bird was calling or hooting or making some noise I didn't yet have a word for. We shushed and stood there for a few minutes behind the enthusiastic bird watcher before sneaking off to bed. She stayed on for over an hour until she caught movement in the reeds beyond the hostel, satisfied with a glimpse of a nocturnal species. For the rest of our trip, my sister and I repeated the woman's line to one another without knowing what it meant and without wanting to know. <laughs> a few months after moving back to Toronto, I admitted to my sister that my attempts to fill my hobby void hadn't amounted to much. What are you looking for? Something that will exercise my patience. That's it. And bring me peace without having to do yoga. Mm. She looked at me and before laughing, whispered in a monotone faux British accent, if you're very, very quiet, you just might see a bird. <laughs> Thank you. Reading from her memoir, Field Notes from an Unintentional Birder, Julia Zarenkin is with us today. Julia, I loved the supporting characters in your book. And memoir always has supporting characters, but I don't think that readers understand the intentionality around who we include and who we don't and how we use them to illustrate um, scenically, usually in the classic show don't tell of writing. Your family members, tell us about that. You know, tell us about concert pianist, uh, teaching, piano teaching parents who find that their PhD daughter has taken up birding. This was a Tell shock. that landed. <laughs> yeah, this was a complete shock to my family. Um, you know, as you mentioned in your introduction, I didn't grow up with nature. Like we grew up going to symphonies, operas, museums, libraries. I literally spent my childhood and adolescence and early adulthood indoors. <laughs> um, and I think when 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 my parents discovered that I was into birds and birding and nature, this was just so far out of their orbit that they didn't really know what I was talking about. But as as they saw that this wasn't just, you know, a passing trend that I was really passionate about this, they kind of started to get into it too. And you know, mm. Um, they started calling me every time they saw a quote-unquote rare bird in there. 
uh, in their backyard. It was usually a robin. And there's this one story I tell in the book, which was, you know, I, I love this story now, but my, my mother called me and she was so excited. And she was like, oh my God, there's, there's a bird. It's multicolored. It's, it's red and blue and yellow and purple. And, and I was like, could it be a painted bunting? But then you'd probably have 300 birders at your door. And then my father interrupted her and he was like, it was a butterfly. It wasn't. <laughs> I love that story. So, so you know, I mean, my parents are very sweet, and they 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 try to um, to somehow contribute to to my birding. Um, they also get me the best gifts now. It's all, right, everything, everything is bird bird themed. But this, um, you know, th this was kind of shocking for them. And I think later on, and as they read my book, they realized that I sort of found a different kind of music. Like mm, music and I, I I found something something different but still sort of related for my grandmother this was all really shocking she was like you're supposed to be a doctor or you know at the very least a molecular biologist or something and I, I told her I'm like well ornithology is science and she just barked back at me she's like it's the wrong kind of science <laughs> I love that <laughs> that's great I'm I'm wondering if you've been able to find any stories um, about about, to share with your parents about composers or, or people that they would relate to who have been birders. Yeah, there's there's actually a lot. Birding, birding plays a pretty significant role in music and the really famous 20th century composer Olivier Messin, the French uh, composer, he was an avid birder and uh, he wrote a number of song cycles based on bird song. So there, there, there's some overlap. And of course, my, my parents, um, they, they love to play four hands, like duets and stuff like that. And one of their favorite pieces to play is Saint-Saëns' Carnival of the Animals, where nice. birds feature quite prominently. So strangely, there, there's some overlap. Mm. But yeah. one one thing that you mentioned is um, sort of how to how to write these secondary characters. And yes. my the thing that I um, I well I didn't really struggle with this, but it it was definitely in in the back of my mind is that I didn't want the secondary character like I wanted them to be full blown people. I didn't want them to just see these paper cutouts. Or yeah. in the case of birders, I didn't want to reduce them to like a birding stereotype. Terrific. So that was something that was a really strong intention of mine as I was writing. And I enjoyed that. I felt like you were, your journey was, had companions along the way, even when they were just foils for your obsession or when they were the comedic counterpoint to your, you know, falls and foibles, right? I, I felt like they, they were a constant. And of course, your husband is and your family reacting and your birding friends whose names you mentioned throughout. I think we continue to see that and that kind of intention for the journey Mm -hmm. made the metaphor you were singing for us very, very loud. And I enjoyed that, that you wanted the decisions you were making in your life and the choices you were making to also be about choosing a hobby in a way that was very surprising for others, right? We, we aren't always what the people closest to us believe we are. Yeah, no, that's, that's very true. Mm -hmm. The, uh, the, con how did you formulate the notion of the book in the beginning? Were you concerned that it might just become a Lister's guide or that it might become all about the birds? How were you able to ensure that this was a memoir, your story had the themes and the resonance that was so powerful for you and not be just about the birds? I'm sure it would be okay if it was, but that wasn't why you wrote the book. 
Yeah, actually, the book started out as a blog. I used to have a blog called Birds and Words. Um, and because I make sense of the world through writing. And so when I started birding, it was such a bizarre universe that I had just stepped into. And it was this universe that I didn't quite understand. So I immediately wanted to write about it. And it started off as these kind of jokey blog posts. And slowly I began to see like, wait a minute, actually, birding does connect with other facets of my life. It's not just these ridiculous moments of, you know, me accidentally mistaking a hummingbird for, a, or sorry, a green heron for a hummingbird. Like, you know, I mean, there, there, there were a lot of ridiculous moments like that. But then I also, I think I wrote a blog post, which got like substantially rewritten in the book about uh, chasing a spotted toey which very, very rarely appears in, in Ontario. It was a huge deal that this bird had showed up, shown up. And we chased it. And I remember looking at its, um, its usual range. And it usually hangs out in California, like max, you know, up and out until uh, the, mid, the Midwest of the United States. And suddenly I could relate to this bird. I was like, wait a minute. I spent three years of my life living in Missouri, feeling completely out of place, feeling completely out of my element. And suddenly I saw myself in this bird. And that, that was the moment where I thought I could write a book about this. Hold on. It's not just about the birds because I'm not trained to write a book about birds. You know, there's right. so many amazing scientists, science writers who actually have knowledge, which I don't have much of, but um, I, I am trained to write about my own life and yes. about how, um, how this bizarre hobby has awakened all these other things in me and has taught me to see in a new way. So that um, spotted toey moment was the moment yeah. where I thought I could, I should turn this into a book. And mm. then, um, you know, my blog sort of disintegrated and then it actually, it, it died. It doesn't exist anymore. Oh. <laughs> it got booted off the server. And that was, that was also a sign for me, like, okay, this needs mm. to be a book. And all my blog posts disappeared, <laughs> which was in a way a gift. Right. And so the book was born, right? Yes, your com your mm -hmm. comment about birding teaching you to see and uh, comments like that in the book were so powerful for me that although you're being both literal and metaphorical, right? You have to learn to look through a scope or look through the binoculars, but then to see the bird. How differently now do you see the world because of the memoir? I mean, have you learned about yourself and what birding brought to you because you did this kind of writing? Not, not the blog, not academic writing, not, not short pieces, but what did you see in the process of writing the memoir about yourself that uh, only the memoir could have brought you? That's a, that's a great question. Uh, well, I think, you know, in a way, birding has taught me to be more present. Um, and a lot of writing this memoir was sort of traveling back in time and bringing, you know, um, having to relive those uh, those moments of seeing birds for the first time, and so that was that was all very sort of fun and and exciting for me, and also to relive some kind of painful memories from from my life of you know stuff that really really didn't go according to my master plan at a at a certain point. So I think it's, right. in a way I, I have learned to just be more comfortable with the present moment and also to find joy in that mm. present moment without constantly looking, looking outside, looking elsewhere. 
Yeah. That's and, and only a memoirist, I think, could say it so profoundly that, you know, while you're busy looking for what you're writing on the page, you're actually seeing your life. And I enjoyed that very much through the book and through the lens of birding. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. In your um, intro, we talked about that you're, you teach courses to lifelong learners about Russian and European culture and literature. I'm wondering how you've integrated uh, your your writing and your birding into teaching (laughs) um so i kind of wear a lot of hats um my 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 teacher they have birds on them (laughs) (laughs) they're chilly they're all chilly hats (laughs) they are all chilly hats (laughs) so my um you know, my PhD was on in comparative literature and I specialized in the Russian literary tradition. So that's what, what most of my lecturing is about. Although people are actually asking me to start weaving birding in. <laughs> so that's, this is, this is new for me. Um, I, I am preparing a series of lectures. Don't, on- did Tolstoy have that in mind? I'm not sure, did he? <laughs> Tolstoy was an obsessive hunter. So he loved hunting snipe and he was, he was a great naturalist and so was Chekhov. Oh, yeah. And so in a way, reading um, mm. these Russian authors through the lens of birding has, has opened up a world that I never paid attention to before. Wonderful. You know, it's, it's funny, I read so much like Russian romantic poetry from mid 19th century. It's filled with birds. And you know, I used to like look up all these words in the dictionary. I didn't know what these birds are, were. And now I'm actually looking them up and it's given me sort of a different way of, of seeing, of seeing that. And of course the Russian, the Russian natural landscape is vast, kind of like the Canadian landscape. Right. Um, right. So there's just, there's so much of the natural world there that I had never, never paid attention to. I'm so glad you brought that up. You know, I think it would make me read differently uh, to be reading for nature in general and not mm-hmm. just be reading for setting, but to be reading for these animal characters that are in proximity yeah. to our lives. And when you read mm-hmm. Tolstoy's novels, so many of the scenes where characters are contemplating their own life and sort of finding unexpected meaning happen during a hunt scene. True right? enough. When they're, when they're um, kind of divorced from the big city, when they're escaping into nature, and this is where they have these profound epiphanies about who they are. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. And I don't, think you know, I, would, I don't think I ever would have paid attention to those scenes had it not been for this other interest in birding. Oh, isn't that? That's incredible, really. It also steps beautifully into a question we're always curious about what authors are reading. Do you have a favorite memoir? Do you have a favorite book? Oh my goodness, that is such a hard question. Um, I have a lot. I have a lot of favorites. So one of um, one of my very favorite contemporary writers is Alexander Hemon. He is American. He's an immigrant from Bosnia. And he writes like fantastic uh, fiction and nonfiction. And his latest memoir is called My Parents. And it's this extraordinary, Mm. um, extraordinary look at his, his parents' lives and his life growing up in Sarajevo and also documenting a lost world because he was like, if I don't write about my parents' past in this communist country, it's, it's just going to die along with them. So that I thought was an absolutely exquisite memoir. Also, I loved Kate Harris's uh, memoir about cycling on the Silk Road. Okay. Um, It's called, what's it called? It has the word Silk Road in it. This is okay. No, that's okay. 
on the channel. We'll look it up and put it in the show notes. By Kate Harris. Mm -hmm. And there's I've another, not read that. Um, there's another, there's a Bulgarian woman who lives in Scotland. She writes in English. Her, her name is Kafka Kasabova, and she wrote these wonderful books, uh, Border and To the Lake. And it's all about Bulgaria's borders. And never in my life did I think I would care so much about Bulgaria's borders. But <laughs> she is such an exquisite writer and she weaves her own story into this larger narrative of borders and how we think about national borders and what that means to us today. And it's just her prose is exquisite. Um, it's also very funny. The, these three authors use humor and that's really important to me in, uh, in a memoir as well. What wonderful recommendations. I Writers I didn't know and books I was not aware of. Um, thank you for that. Yes. Mm. I feel like we're going to have to stop interviewing people so I can read the books they're recommending. <laughs> this is catch I don't 22. think that's the idea. I don't think that's the idea. But I do have to say that my whole birding adventure actually started with an essay that I read by Jonathan Franzen called My yes. Problem. Right. I love and that. I read that. And that was even before I had seen my first bird because, you know, I processed the word, the world through literature. So I read that and I was like, maybe that's what I need. Maybe I need a bird problem. Maybe you need own. a bird. Right. And in fact, you have one now. You have exactly. One. <laughs> yeah. So what, what will you do next? What will Julia Zarankin do next? Will it be bird related? Will you write another book? What's in the works for you? Can you give us a sneak peek? Absolutely. Or are you just going to promote this for the next while? But I bet you know what your next plan is. So I am actually working on a fiction project. I'm okay. working on a novel, which I'm really, really excited about. It's still in the beginning phases, so I'm a little bit superstitious. So I'm not going to yes. say too much about it. But I will say that it has some adult ballet in it. And it also has a beauty pageant for Russian emigre grandmothers called the Babushka Beauty Pageant, which is actually a real <laughs> thing in Brighton Beach. So <laughs> I love it. Oh, the grandmother wow. character, a version of her is something I'm developing in my, mm. in my novel right now. Oh, that is. It's interesting. This is like a total side note, not we were not going to talk about this, but I just discovered that there's this genre, Patty and I were talking about on the weekend called crone lit. Have you heard of this? And it's actually, I, I think, was, we were talking about that, right, Patty? With, um, yes, we were. Somebody else. It's just, I was thinking there's this kind of interest right now, and maybe your character will tap into that a little bit of exploring um, sort of a, a more vibrant life for older women. We were, what were we talking that about? We were, so cool. I had no idea it was a crone lit, right? We, we I think it was Sharon Butala. Sharon Butala. And yeah. interestingly enough, we stepped into a discussion like this with Sharon Blackie, whose next book right. is going to be called Hagitude, where she's trying, and she's a mythologist. She's trying to play on this idea of the hag being the crone, being the elder wise woman in, in traditional communities and traditional um literature and oh. then a Canadian Sharon Butala is working on something about this so there's a period in middle adulthood where I think we start to explore our stories but there's both I know Sharon Blackie brought this up is that we tend to th talk about life like 
it doesn't happen for women after the 40s and 50s, right? That's sort of where we stop hearing women telling their stories and there's so much more to life. And certainly your book steps into that because you're redefining yourself and redefining your career and choosing what would be a brand new hobby in middle life. So bravo for Crone Lit. We're going to be looking more into that. Yes. Yes, me too. So we could keep talking and uh, want to give our listeners an opportunity to hear from you how they can best connect with you. So I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is jzarankin. I also have a website, juliazarankin.com. And um, I'm on Instagram a little bit, but Twitter is sort of my my main thing. So Julia, thank you so much. Oh, for what being- a pleasure. What an absolute pleasure. And thank you for letting us, uh, our, our very not, not more than for beginning birders step into your life and try to talk birds with you. It was fantastic. It was. was great. Thanks for having me.